Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a uh, most welcome return guest, uh, Sir Dennis Noble. I've spoken to him probably five or six times. Each time, it's always a uh, completely new set of information that's very useful and interesting. Um, he's part of the Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics at University of Oxford. Uh, he's been involved in science for, uh, I would guess, 60-plus years, you know, far longer than I've been around. Uh, today, the reason why I wanted to speak to him today um, after a while is uh, he recently came out with a press release, uh, him and James Shapiro, also a scientist that uh, has been around for many decades, um, talking about some possible links between cancer and evolution and uh, Darwinism you know, the modern synthesis and kind of the entanglement of these, uh, these ideas and what's, what progress will be dependent on the understanding of the interplay between, you know, Darwin's views, um, a more modern interpretation that's more expansive and uh, how cancer works. So this kind of sounds nebulous, but I'll, I'll let him explain. So Dennis, welcome back. Well, very happy to come back, Rich. You know, so you've been doing science for a very long time. What made you come out with this this press release with uh, James Shapiro, it seems, yes. I wouldn't say it's a shot across the bow, but it's a more stronger assertion that things are not all well in uh, evolutionary theory. So yes, what, I'm afraid, what's the background of this paper? Yes, I'm afraid that is the case. And um, the two articles that form the basis of the press release, one is the article with James Shapiro concerned with what it is that the modern textbooks on evolutionary biology are omitting that are extremely important discoveries. We actually documented around 40 discoveries, all the way from 
the early part of the 20th century to the present day, which, as far as we can see, are either underplayed or even totally ignored, but which are essential to understanding evolutionary biology. The other article is what I call the illusions of the modern synthesis of evolutionary biology, where I identify four major areas where I think the standard evolutionary biologists need to bring their ideas uh, right up to date. Now, the practical outcome of this and the reason for the connection with cancer is, I think, very simple to describe. The central feature in my work recently, starting from a meeting at the Royal Society in London in 2016 and published in 2017, is that organisms, you and me and all life on the planet, don't just wait for mutations to occur and uh, that they just get suffered randomly. We actually use random variation to direct our own development and evolution. That was published in 2017 and there's been no substantial uh, criticism of that idea. And there's a very good reason for that, which is that the immune system is doing this all the time. (laughs) If you ask the question, how does the immune system respond to, uh, for example, the uh, virus we're all dealing with at the moment, the coronavirus, the answer is, of course, it rapidly mutates its genome in just the region of the genome that needs to change in order to find a new solution. And it chooses the best solution. I mean, that's a beautifully directed process. I'm saying this happens all the time. It isn't just the immune system. I have a, uh, Dennis, Dennis, I have a quick question here. Are you also asserting that organisms can use and recognize randomness to their own adaptation to their advantage? Precisely. Exactly so. Yes, that's right. That's it. In a nutshell, that's it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a major claim. That's right. It, it means that the standard theory, which is that we just have random mutations and then natural selection weeds out the best from the results of that is only part of the story. How, how would you identify an example of an organism recognizing randomness and using it to its advantage? Right. Well, first, it might be worth going through briefly how the immune system does it, because then one can generalize it to how organisms can do it generally. The immune system does it very simply. The organism receives a new attack. It might be, as we're suffering at the moment, a particular virus. It might be a bacterium that is not met before. Then it looks amongst its existing immunoglobulins. Those are the proteins that attack the invader and latches onto them to neutralize them. And if he's got one, obviously it will ask the cells that can make that to produce it. If it hasn't, it does something quite fascinating. It actually tells the genome to start mutating at a very rapid rate, producing millions of new DNA sequences. That's literally what happens. We've known this for Oh, decades. This is not a new discovery at all. Certainly not my discovery. What I uh, did 
in 2017 was to generalize this and say that there is absolutely no reason why the organism should not do this in other contexts other than the immune system. Now, we know, for example, the bacteria do that all the time. That's how we're now in trouble with antibiotics, because we've used so freely so much antibiotics, particularly in agriculture, but also too loosely within the health services, that the bacteria have seen how to um, evolve themselves rapidly enough to find new bacteria that evade the antibiotics. And that's going to be a disaster if we don't develop uh, some new antibiotics fairly soon, and I mean within the next decade or so, we will find that we will go back to the situation before World War II, when soldiers were wounded in a war, people having major accidents requiring huge operations, will die simply because of bacterial infection for no other reason. And so I think this is a major challenge that we face. And that kind of hypermutation of random changes being, as it were, harnessed, that's the word I use, to find a solution to the challenge the organism has faced, that is occurring all the time. A question here, Dennis, when you said the immune system exposed to a, a stimulus or a pathogen yes. will cause the organism to uh, to genetically change, are you saying on an epigenetic level or a, or no, a base pair level? Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. At the base level, that's the that's why it's so surprising. But people should not be surprised, Rich. As I said earlier, we've known this in the immune system for at least 30 years. What people say, I'll tell you what happens if I debate this kind of question with somebody like Richard Dawkins, he will tell me, oh, Dennis, the immune system is just an exception. Fact is, it's not an exception. You can find this triggered hypermutation in many, many situations where organisms are under great stress. So it's not novel. Now, the relevance to a major uh, health problem like cancer is very simply this. What's also been shown is that cancers do exactly the same thing. If when we treat them with chemotherapy or radiotherapy in a very aggressive way, which is, of course, what we do in late stage cancer, stages three and four, the metastatic stages, we actually provoke the very mutations we're trying to avoid. What that's why for now, well, ever since President Nixon's war on cancer was launched, what is it, nearly 50 years ago now? I don't know the exact date offhand. Um, we really have not made as much progress 
as the investment would indicate, between roughly 50 years ago and now, people still don't survive very well from late-stage cancer. And the reason is very simple. You can measure it. There's a radiation of, phen- of, of genotypes. The DNA is being altered because what the cancer cells are saying, and of course I'm using an anthropomorphic way of, of describing this, but what they are in effect saying is we're under attack. We have to now mutate as rapidly as possible, and that's precisely what a cancer does. It radiates rapidly out into new forms. Incidentally, this issue has been taken very seriously by none other than the biggest cancer research organization in the world, the American Association for Cancer Research. That group, the applying evolutionary concepts to cancer, is now an official working group of the American Association for Cancer Research. So you don't just have to take my word for it. Top people in cancer research are beginning now to take this issue very seriously indeed. How do you think, um, in light of these new ideas, uh, cancer first starts? That's a very, very big question, Rich. The answer is no. And I think that the idea is that it's just an accumulation of random mutations is not sufficient. I personally think, and now I'm speculating, okay, I personally think that cancerous developments are occurring all the time. After all, the natural state of the living cell is to reproduce. Isolated cells that are complete organisms like amoebae and many other organisms do that all the time. They just reproduce as rapidly as they can. When they're in a tissue in the body, like your and my body, they are in effect, and again, I'm anthropomorphizing the language, in effect, the tissue, the organ itself, tells the cells to stop reproducing when there are enough cells. Now, a cancer develops when the cell reverts to type, reverts to what is its origin as a single cell. And that is, it starts um, reproducing too rapidly. Whatever causes that, and that's a very big question, I totally agree with you, but that's that's a, a very big question indeed. We'd love to know the answer to that. <clears throat> but whatever then causes that, from there on, it becomes, a, it becomes like a, a, a species within a species. It's got its own interests, if you like. It's no longer obeying the rules of the body. It is actually invading the very body in which it arose. And our problem, of course, is how to treat that. What I'm saying is treating with very, very aggressive therapy is not necessarily going to do much good. We've got to find better ways of treating cancer uh, than that. And we've also got to find uh, better ways of identifying the very earliest stages of cancer. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. At the meeting about a year ago that we held in Boston, that issue was attacked by a number of people pointing out ways in which we might be able to identify early stage cancer so that we don't have to wait for the late stage. One example of that was the work 
on something I've discussed with you on a previous podcast of yours, the extracellular vesicles, the exosomes, which are known to carry cancerous signals from cancer cells to other cells in the body. If we could just from a saliva test or from a blood test, isolate the vesicles and see whether we've got the signs of cancerous development at an early stage, that would be very much better. That's just one example of the possible way forward for trying to get early diagnosis. It's a strange idea. What what if um, our bodies deliberately create a few cancer cells to allow our phenotype to explore you know, all the stimuluses that we encounter, but in a different way, you know, just as we have different tissue types and cell types of different functions, maybe it's crazy, but do you think that our tissues create, you know, micro cancers that are controllable? And again, the reason is to allow for maybe more extensive adaptation than we normally could get in response to strips. That's very similar to an idea I've had for several years now, which is the, idea that really there are latent cancers in all of us all the time. Yes, you see, there's no reason since mutation rate can be controlled, um, there's no reason why that should not lead tissues and organs to generate new um, genotypes within the population of cells forming them. Now, that could be a natural strategy, as you are implying. I think it's a very good idea because it gives the tissue or the organ or the whole organism greater flexibility in responding to any challenge that it faces. Incidentally, this is an idea that goes back at least 40 years to a French um, scientist called Jean-Jacques Coupier, who pointed out long ago that the big range of gene expression levels in different cells in the same tissue could be used by an organism to decide which are the most appropriate cells for what it's trying to do at that time. He got the idea, which I've developed recently, that it might be that cells, or rather tissues, are choosing between cells after they have mutated to see which would be the most appropriate for the response that it has to produce to whatever challenge the organism is facing. So I think that's a very good idea. It's not proven, but I think the idea that there's latent cancer development all the time is indeed very possible. Well, maybe it's analogous to stem cells being in a lot of tissues. The stem cells aren't differentiated at first. They serve repair function. Perhaps this is an analog and, you know, the cancer cells are the best adapters or early taste testers of, you know, environment and circumstance. Maybe they just serve a different role. I don't know. It's it's a good way of thinking about it. Yes, of course, there will be many kinds of stem cells from the sort of pluripotent stem cells to the stem cells with specific tissues. And so that's another way of looking at the same kind of problem, isn't it? Um, does a cell, when it departs from the norm, um, revert back to being a bit like a stem cell, or does it go off on a new path 
which itself may be useful to the organism or indeed a danger to the organism, in which case, of course, it can become uh, the basis of a cancer. I think there's a gradation all the way from the stem cell concept to the idea that there might be latent cancerous cells in all of our tissues. Yeah, I wonder if, if cancer is a um, a forced continual adaptation that becomes maladaptation. I'm just I'm just curious about how it starts and what your thoughts are. Yes, it it of course it becomes a maladaptation if it becomes so big that it takes metabolic energy from the rest of the organism, and that of course is why uh, a late stage cancer is very weakening. It it does take huge amounts of energy from the rest of the organism. It also stimulates the growth of, as we know, angiogenesis, that's the growth of um, the vascular system, to continually feed it with what it needs. So um, cancers are very clever at doing all of that. One of the other ways in which, of course, we attempt to treat cancer um, in an experimental way is to find whether you can control the angiogenesis process, that is, deprive the cancerous tissue of of getting uh, new blood vessels. If we could do that, that would be another way to try to uh, deal with with cancer. There are many routes, and I think what we need to do is to see that thinking that all change in the genome is random in the strict sense and not under the control of the organism, is actually blinding us to some major processes, like the processes in the immune system, like the processes in bacteria that resist antibiotics, that could be extremely fruitful in terms of dealing with uh, problems like cancer. Yeah, I I just wonder, um, when cancer is early and it's in a tissue, the cells that comprise it, do they have, what kind of identities do they have? Like if I have liver cells, do the liver cells identify on many levels, meaning I'm a hepatocyte, but I'm also part of this larger tissue, but I'm also part of this thing called, you know, liver organ, but I'm also part of the whole organism. Like, so what I'm saying is cancer cells at first, do you think they identify with and have allegiance to the tissue from which they come? And then when they grow to a certain size and they become their own tumor, do they then act as a, a separate organism and their allegiance switches? Yes, I think that's not a bad way of putting it. Um, that's why we, in the meeting a year ago, that eventually led to the formation of the evolutionary cancer uh, group within the American Association for Cancer Research, um, much of the ideas that were being, uh, many of the ideas that were being put forward at that meeting essentially come down to saying that the cancerous tissue in the end no longer identifies as normal tissue. It is itself an enemy of the tissue in which it is growing. Now, self-identify, that's an interesting and difficult question. I would define that to be does it still respond properly to the signals from the tissue in which it sits to stop reproducing when it is told to do so? 
Once it does not do that, once it escapes from that control, I think it's no longer a standard liver cell, a standard skin cell, a standard whatever cell. And I think that's not a bad way of putting it. I, I enjoy these discussions with you, Rich, because you also, it seems to me, think outside the box and point well, to analogies that I could could be very fruitful. And I think this is one. The cancer tumor is like a new species within the species or a new tissue within the tissue. And it's got to fight for its own nutrients and so on. You're right. It's no longer as it were, self-identifying as part of the team. It's breaking out from the team. Yeah, and when it comes to metastases, is there a, is the primary become like the boss tumor and it communicates with the metastases? Or, again, is it now a networked organism within us? That's where the exosomes or extracellular vesicles come in. They do communicate, yes. Um, I mean, quite frankly, the... Uh, the discovery of the functional role of extracellular vesicles is is really important in so many areas of physiology and pathology. But what we do know from the work on the extracellular vesicles or exosomes uh, so far is that the cancer cells are sending out signals there. As it was saying, we're here. And then other cells are also, in effect, saying, we're also here. We're with you because we're part of you. Because it's relatively easy. After all, these extracellular vesicles contain a kind of, it's almost like a, 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 a little snapshot of the state of regulation of that particular cell from which it came. So it wouldn't be too difficult for the... Uh, other cells to know the kind of cell from which it came. It looks as though the cancer cells are communicating not only that kind of information in the extracellular vesicles that they put out, but also to the extent of laying down pathways for the growth of the tumour. This actually helps the tumour to grow. That's also been demonstrated, and one of the papers published in the it's an issue of progress in biophysics and molecular biology that is uh, just finished and is online now the cancer evolution meeting produced a whole issue one of the papers in that issue um, is the paper by Wilms and Bonner they are extracellular vesicle specialists and they point out exactly that that some of those extracellular vesicles are laying down pathways for the future metastatic process. So, yes, they are acting like a community. The more I think about your idea that it's as though they're no longer self-identifying with the tissue and have become a kind of species within the species, the more I like the idea. I wonder, this is from the last time we talked again, why do certain cancers seem to have tropisms for metastasis? I don't know if it's just... Oh, you know, these, the liver ducts lead to the pancreas and that's why there's a tropism or there's somehow a searching, you know, through the extracellular vesicles to say, all right, this tissue is going to be the most receptive for us to spread. Go here. Yeah. And maybe that's why there's tropisms. I don't know. I think that's roughly what the extracellular vesicle work is telling us. There are pathways being laid down by the vesicles themselves for it's a kind of tropism, if you like, yes. 
I think there's still a lot of work to be done on this to work out, um, does that give us a better explanation for spread to other tissues than the tissue in which the cancer developed initially? I don't know. But what we do know, and again, this is one of the clear breaks with the standard theory of evolution, um, it is that those extracellular vesicles can pass to the germline too, to the future eggs and sperm, which is, of course, why I now favour the view that they can pass acquired characteristics down through the future generations. And we know already that DNAs and RNAs do go to the germline in that kind of way. So these vesicles can travel long distances. Um, they can, if in effect, travel all over the body within the lymphatic and, and blood vessel systems. Has, has anyone tried to do an experiment? Let's say two mice both have liver cancer that's metastasized to, I'm just making this up, you know, the pancreas. They take out the primary on one and see the result, and they take out the metastasis only on the second and see the result. Has anyone tried an experiment like that to see if you're attacking again, assuming that this is a now a distributed organism, depending on what you attack of it, it'll respond differently. So the experiment would be just say that again to take. Let's say we have um, you know a hundred mice that have liver cancer. Yes, and in all of them it's metastasized to. The pancreas. Okay. So yeah. in half of them, you reset the, the liver tumor only, you know, the main one. And then the yes. other half, you reset the metastasis in the pancreas and then okay. see the effect okay. of the cancer. Because in one, you've taken out perhaps the mothership and the other one, you've taken out a metastasis. How, how would the cancers yes. react? Yes. I don't know that that experiment has been done, but it's a very good idea put that to the Cancer Evolution Working Group and see what somebody says. Yeah. Thanks for that, yes. Yeah, yeah. because I, I just I just keep wondering about, again, the cells in our body normally, where are their, again, their allegiances and do they know themselves as, you know, it's like you, you're in, you're in England, you're also, you know, associated with Oxford, so you're, you're Dennis Noble, the regular guy, you're also Dennis Noble, the professor, you're Dennis Noble, the scientist, you're Dennis Noble, the the family man, you are many things and you have yeah. different relationships to the other people around you. I wonder if the cells in our body recognize that and how they recognize, if at all, the, the relationships they have to the tissue they're in, the organ they're in, other organs, the whole organism, etc. Yes, that has to be the case because, after all, as I said earlier on, the cells within a given tissue, a given organ have to be behaving correctly to the signals sent out from that tissue or whole organ to stop reproduction going too fast. Those controls are clearly tissue-level or organ-level controls. And yes, I think you could say the difference between a cell recognizing that it is part of the liver community is that it responds correctly to those signals, telling it to stop reproducing when the liver, as it were, got the, well, I put it idea. Of course, we're not, we're, we're talking anthropomorphically here. It hasn't got consciousness as far as I know. <laughs> I don't know what has consciousness to be sure, but um, 
It's not that the liver is saying to itself, I've got too many cells. It is that the feedback mechanisms that are naturally controlling the tissue need to keep those cells that recognize itself as a liver cell under control. And I think the definition of whether a cell regards itself and identifies itself as a liver cell is that it accepts that control. Otherwise, it is indeed a rogue state within the state. It's it's cells going off on their own way. And that's, of course, what we mean by uh, a cancer. So do you you think there's a quorum-based control or quorum-based signaling? So in the liver, if it's time to make a certain enzyme, and the liver signals, okay, liver cells, come on, make the enzyme. And there's enough cancerous ones that, you know, for some reason don't want to make that enzyme or they, they need to make something else to sustain themselves. The the signal strength of these these two desires, I guess I'll call them, or these two imperatives. Um, yes. Perhaps once the, the cancer signal has enough votes, let's say, to to overwhelm the main functioning of the liver signal, at least in a microenvironment, maybe that's what, that's what causes the changeover of allegiance. And then the cancer becomes its own entity. I don't know. You're raising a lot of very interesting questions. At the at the meeting a, a year ago, and in some of the papers in the issue of progress in biophysics and molecular biology that is just coming out, there are people asking that kind of question. What is it in the regulatory networks that control gene expression control um, the error-correcting process in DNA replication, which is exactly how uh, organisms can control and get new um, DNA sequences from controlling that proof-correcting process. How is it that those networks manage to keep everything under control? But now I come, Rich, to a big problem, which is that we focused so much in research on genomic uh, research, annotating what the genome tells us, the association levels between particular gene sequences and various propensities for ill health, that we really haven't put enough resources into the higher level understanding. Those networks, those controlling networks, which consist of RNAs, of proteins, of the lipids in which many of the processes exist, those are fiendishly complicated. That's what physiology is about, of course. It's about that complexity, that organization, And we really don't have enough understanding of that. One of the workers that I found extremely interesting in this context is at the Institute for for Systems Biology at Seattle, and that's Sui Huang, in origin Chinese, but, but obviously now naturalized American. He's done some fascinating work on exactly how it is that the regulatory process can switch from one state to another, regardless of what the gene sequences are saying, to then, as it were, feed back onto the genome to 
make it more likely that particular gene sequences will survive rather than others. This is another process by which the organism can, as it were, not only change its own genome, but also then select from what is there. But this is very much early days of that kind of work. We we need much better understanding of those exceedingly complicated um, higher level networks of organization in cells and tissues. We haven't put enough resources into that. And another point that I'm making as loud and clear as I can in uh, thinking this through and talking to grant bodies is you really must pay attention to the fact that we've not made as much progress as we were promised 20 odd years ago with the, the, the sequencing of genomes. The association levels between particular gene sequences and particular health problems are so weak, it doesn't help us a lot. It's these higher level networks that we really need to understand. Sui Huang's work in Seattle, I think, points the way through for that kind of development. I've heard you say many times there's no privileged level of causation. That's I right. Guess that maybe, but does that mean there's no privileged level of control? Meaning control can happen at many different levels. And maybe our mistake is that we're looking at, oh, control only is one way and comes only from the genes. Exactly. But there's many, many levels of control all yeah. based on whatever rules, you know, quorum exactly sensing, so. et cetera. Yes, then many things can happen. Better. Yeah, mm. no, that's absolutely right, Rich. Yes, we that is the problem. We've, we've let the higher scale, higher level organization be something we're putting off to another day. <laughs> I, I've heard this mantra many times. You know, Dennis, we, we, we need to understand the genome before we go to your level of organization, your level of cells, tissues and organs. But the fact is that we need to do both. I'm not against genome sequencing. Do understand that, which has done a lot for us, particularly in evolutionary biology, um, and in many other ways, uh, but it hasn't delivered the goods in relation to healthcare that we were really expecting. And I think the reason for that is is quite simple to explain. Cells really are quite capable of managing, even when many of the genes that are responsible for the proteins and RNAs that take part in those networks are missing. And the reason is very simple. It's the same reason for which if an aircraft control system fails, the pilot switches to another one or he reboots the system. You know, you've got to have backups and nature has got backups extensively, at, but those are all at the higher level. They're not down at the gene level. And so we really do need to understand how it is that those networks are extremely robust. I showed this, oh, over 30 years ago with the Hearts Pacemaker you can knock a very important component out, either block it with a drug so the protein no longer works, or knock it out with a gene knockout so that the protein is not made. And you might expect a huge change in heart frequency. You find only a very modest change because what's happening, and this is what I demonstrated in my work in my lab many years ago, is that another mechanism takes over. The network knows how to do that. It's that clever. 
So even if you've got a very small association between a particular gene sequence and the health problems that might be involved, it doesn't mean that that is not normally involved. It may be that even if you've got a zero association, it was involved. It's just that the higher level system knows how to cope when it hasn't got that particular mechanism any longer to rely on. It's a kind of belt and braces issue, isn't it? If you want to keep your trousers up, have both. Well, I've got another potential big complication. This comes from an interview, I think I told you before, with Florencia McAllister, who studies uh, pancreatic tumors. Yes. So she identified that not only does the pancreas have a microbiome, and I suspect that the entire body has a microbiome. It's Indeed. everywhere. Yes. Um, she said pancreatic tumors had a different localized microbiome. So part of the transition from, you know, I'm a tumor and I'm with the body versus I'm a tumor and I'm now on my own uh, could be the attraction of a localized microbiome that requires different metabolites, different needs. And so this makes the tumor mass more and more divergent over time from the rest of the, you know, the organ in which it sits. Yes. Because now it has different microbiome, different signaling, different metabolites. So I, I would think that this would, again, cause more of a divergence over time. Could, yes. I I don't know enough about that particular area, but I respect those who have been asking us to to pay more attention to the microbiome and its variations and so on. So I'm with the idea, uh, but I don't have anything terribly insightful to contribute to it. Yeah, I just I just wonder if, if that's another major factor, again, of divergence, but I guess it'll have to be seen. It very much could be, yes. Um, what right. about the, um, if, if I'm a, a cancer cell and I start, again, proliferating and I make a small tumor, I would think also the longer that I exist, the more divergent I'm going to become from the surrounding tissue regardless. Because well, that's what you see. Exactly so. And they do it very rapidly. Exactly so. You know, again, there are articles in the issue I've, of the journal that I've just referred to which show that um, there are rapid radiations of forms within cancer development. That's absolutely correct. So if our body creates this deliberately, I'm just, you know, supposing here, um, and it's useful for us at some level. And then at some point it gets out of control and that leads to cancer. Perhaps the start of cancer then really lies in our, our, our relinquishment or our, our errors in our control systems, in our immunity. And that's really what allows it to start. Maybe it's ever present, but that's where it really sets it on the path to becoming its own organism and, you know, unfortunately eventually killing us. Yes, I, I, I think that gets it rather nicely. Yes, it is as though there's a gradation um, between cells that are behaving well within the organism and within the tissue in which it exists and obeying the signals to tell it to stop reproducing when it's got enough of them. And the need for diversity in case the organism needs one kind of, say, liver cell rather than another. That was the insight of the French scientist I referred to, Jean-Jacques Coupier, that the possible functional significance of such a huge variation of expression levels within cells 
in a tissue, which incidentally has been fully confirmed experimentally by Sui Huang and his group in Seattle, maybe that is initially extremely useful to the organism because it gives the variety from which the organism can, as it were, select. But there's a degree here, isn't there, of difference. (laughs) The difference becomes such that it then becomes essentially its own self and escapes from the control of the organ or organism or the tissue in which it finds itself, then it's gone too far. And I think it's quite a good insight to see that as a gradation. The diversity is important physiologically, but it also can be the basis of a cancerous development. I think that's a very good insight. So what's um, what's to come from here? Uh, you know, have, have your working group identified um, certain grants that you're going to seek? Or, you know, what, what are you able to say that's not proprietary? But again, what's the path from here in terms of uh, trying to understand cancer in a different way? Yes, our f- first move is going to be actually next month, organize yet another uh, symposium uh, to bring together. You see, having formed the working group within the American Association for Cancer Research, uh, what is happening is that a lot of people who are members of the AACR can choose to be members of that working group. So, in effect, we are by becoming a group within the AACR, we are tapping into talent which we didn't even know about. So part of the process now will be to identify that additional talent going way beyond the eight or nine or ten people who started the whole process a year ago uh, and to see whether there are people who come up with, well, hey, wait a minute, I've got the idea of how to deal with that. Or I know how the extracellular vessels can give us a signal that might tell us about very early stage cancer, so on and so forth. We want to put the questions out to people in a way doing what I think you do often in your um, books and, and so on. That is question the geniuses, question those who have ideas and see where it leads. Forming a community in science is extremely important, and I don't think we can underestimate the importance of the Cancer Evolution Initiative of having become um, a working group within the AACR. It's too early to know where that will lead, because it's only just recently that it's been formed. Uh, But I think the future will be to identify talent which we did not even know existed. Our role is to put the questions, put the ideas out, and see what what kind of response we will get. Yeah, so long as there's funding to answer some of these questions, then yeah, progress can happen. But indeed, so. Yeah, I see. Like I would say, probably ninety five percent of the people I talk to are still within the uh, you know the, the neo Darwinist model. And I know when questioned, yeah. they won't come out of it. It's so I guess you have to get yes. enough people going to uh, to get this effort moving. You know? Exactly so. Well, there are good signs, Rich, I can tell you. The signs are the following. First, a bit earlier this year, three or four months ago now, the highly prestigious society in the United Kingdom called the Linnaean Society, 
That's, that's named after Linnaeus, who was the first person to classify organisms with the Latin names that we all use. That society was the host of the first presentation of the idea of natural selection by uh, Charles Darwin and Russell Wallace in 1858. Now, that organization, which is very much the establishment in uh, biology in relation to evolutionary biology and classification, that hosted a totally different type of symposium, which is going to be published in the journal of the Linnaean Society. That's one example where things really are moving. There is a growing momentum to the group who are saying, hey, wait a minute, the neo-Darwinist synthesis is not sufficient in itself to cope with what we've got to deal with. And another sign is that yet another journal, I can't name it at the moment, has also asked the third way of evolution, which is the dissenting group of now nearly a 100 researchers have identified with that group, um, to also produce a, a special issue of articles dealing with third way ideas. So, yes, there's a long way to go, and you're quite right, at least 95% will still identify with the standard view. Um, I know that, you know that, and I think many people do. But the, the seeds are there for the alternative approaches to grow, and I'm very much encouraged by all of that. I'm taking part myself in contributing articles to those issues of journals that have asked for uh, what you might call out of the standard theory um, contributions. So the seeds are there, they are growing. And I think that's a good sign. What do you think is the uh, the most glaring aspect of the modern synthesis that's lacking in, in its ability to understand biology? Well, I think, first of all, it's rejection of the inheritance of acquired characteristics. That is based on what is called the Weissman barrier, the idea that the future germ cells, the future egg and sperm, are totally isolated from any changes in the body. We now know that isn't true. It's been broken. And as I said earlier, DNAs and RNAs can cross, and many of them will be changed, DNAs and RNAs, can cross from the organism as a whole to uh, the future generations through the germline. That's been demonstrated very, very clearly. That's number one that I think is wrong. The second is something I've been shocked by. Uh, I, I remember, you see, being taught oh, goodness me, nearly 70 years ago as a 14-year-old in school, first taught evolutionary biology with uh, a very popular book at that time, first published in 1947, called Animal Biology. Now, what I read there is actually completely untrue. I have still got a copy of that book, but I was taught that Lamarck, did not know about a tree of life, that Darwin was the first person to draw a tree of life. Uh, notably, and I'm not denigrating Darwin at all in saying what I'm going to say, he produced his notebook B diagram of what he'd found on the Galapagos. But what he didn't know, and Charles Darwin certainly did not know this, is that 
28 years before him in his 1809 book on uh, evolutionary biology, uh, Lamarck actually produced a detailed tree of life. Now, I wasn't taught that school. And if you go to the major textbook of evolutionary biology today, Futuma and Fitzpatrick, just called simply Evolution, published by Sinaua and by Oxford University Press, you will not find that diagram. You will not find Lamarck's tree there. Instead, you'll find that what is attributed to Lamarck, I think it's on page 18 of that book, I even remember that kind of detail, is very precisely the theory of Lamarck's great enemy, Cuvier. I mean, you know, you cannot get something more wrong than that. Now, as I said, uh, Jim Shapiro and I have identified yet another 30-odd cases where the standard textbooks have simply got things either underplayed, definitely wrong, or simply completely ignored. They did that with Barbara McClintock, who first showed that organisms can change genomes. She did that way back in the late 1930s and uh, published it in the 1950s, eventually got the Nobel Prize, of course, in 1983, at the age of 81, when it was recognized that all of this occurs. But do you try and find Barbara McClintock referenced in Futuma and Fitzpatrick a uh, book on evolution, which is the standard text for most students today. That is the problem. We're, we're not teaching students some of the major things that are now known to be true. That's serious. What do you think will be a useful path from here? How do you turn the tide? Well, as I said, Rich, I'm actually encouraged that the tide is beginning to turn, but it's a big, big issue. Um, I mean, you know, the, we've we've lived with the modern senses for 80 years. It's Julian Huxley's book in 1942 that launched it under that name, Evolution, the Modern Synthesis. Um, now, I've also made another discovery. I've read carefully recently all 600 pages of Julian Huxley's book, and I discovered something very interesting. His modern synthesis is nothing like as restrictive and dogmatic as the current evolutionary biology textbooks will tell you. I was amazed when I discovered this. At least seven of the major points that Jim Shapiro and I have made in our article uh, showing what is missing from the current textbooks are there in Julian Huxley's book all 80 years ago. What happened? What happened was as soon as the central dogma was formulated in the 1950s, the central dogma being you can go from DNA to RNA to proteins, but never the other way around, Julian Huxley himself in the second edition of his book in 1963 actually hardened the synthesis and others did so even more so by restricting it. That's, of course, what Richard Dawkins did in his book, The Selfish Gene. We need to go back 80 years to the original modern synthesis, but we need to add two things to it, which Julian Huxley got wrong. That's adherence to the idea of the isolation of the germ cells. They're not isolated. And also, though we've not referred to it in this discussion, he excluded the a uh, very insightful idea that Charles Darwin had of sexual selection or social selection, that is, choosing mates 
by so doing, changing the way in which the species develops, which, of course, is what breeders do all the time. But other organisms can do it as well as humans. So those two, I think, mistakes of Julian Huxley apart, quite a lot of what he wrote way back in 1942 makes a lot of sense to me today. But the modern textbooks, I'm afraid, don't refer to all of that. All of those have been eliminated. After all, what have I got to give for society today? Only the insights I've got and say, when I think we need to change, and I think we do need to, and we need to do so as rapidly as we can. I think the good signs are there that a lot of people are now beginning to wake up to the fact we've got to have a much broader view of evolutionary biology and its implications for cancer, for the development of bacteria and antibiotics and so on uh, than we've had so far. We need an opening up of research in this area. Yeah, I agree. Um, Dennis, we're at the end of the time. So where can people find the working group? What's its name? How can people interact with you? It's the uh, Cancer Evolution Working Group of the American Association for Cancer Research, for short, C-E-W-G. That's it. And you can find it on the AACR website, which must be something like AACR.org. I'm pretty mm. certain that will get it. If you then click on the research side of the website and look for the working group, you'll easily find the Cancer Evolution Working Group. And you'll find that I'm a member of its executive committee. It's headed mm. by Frank Laukin, who was the person who organized the meeting back last uh, October of last year. Uh, and of course, you'll find um, quite a lot of us there as part of the evolution and cancer research group. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, Dennis, again, thank you for coming back. And uh, I hope to have you back more times again. And, and I appreciate all the work that you're doing. It's huge. Thank you very much, Rich. It's a great pleasure to appear on your podcast. It's always a very good pleasure to talk with you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.